Uh, you know, there's all kinds of uh, what I would call home-building horror stories. Um, projects where people, for one reason or another, chose to forego the blueprints, and, and then on the other side of that, the final project turned out to be just a little bit different um, from what was planned on, on paper. And, you know, as a, as a homeowner myself, and, you know, when you first own a home, uh, you can't afford anybody to do anything for you, so you try to figure it out yourself and learn the hard way. So I could give you a list of some of my, um, my, my home-building project stories, um, but some of the best always seem to find their way to the Internet. And so there's a few behind me that uh, I want to just share for your viewing pleasure. Um, this, is, this is one that says, an interesting flight of stairs to try to get up because the stairs run into each other. Uh, that one's a difficult one. Here we see a brilliant thing where there's an electrical outlet right next to a, uh, a water spigot, which uh, the, uh, the, the town building inspector is not going to be a very big fan of. Um, another one is uh, a garage to nowhere. So the, uh, the tagline says, either the neighbors are hiding a flying car in their garage, or this is a huge design fail. And, uh, and, and one more, uh, you, you do not want to ride your car down, down that driveway. You're going to bottom out uh, each and every time. So, uh, so following the blueprints matters, right? And, uh, and what we've been doing over the past few weeks is just kind of like taking out the blueprints of, of church, uh, not, not the physical blueprints of a, of a building, but uh, the blueprints to the supernatural community of, of Christ followers, that, that together we're a part of, we're connected together in this way. And, and my conviction is that when the church is operating according to God's blueprint, when, when we're doing the things that God has called us to do, that there's, there's nothing else on earth that compares to it. And, you know, we've been, um, we've been trying to do that uh, as best we can for some time here at Lakeview. And, uh, and, and that involves just loving on people, helping connect people to understand what life looks like with, with Jesus in it. And, uh, and it's been a lot of fun. You know, for some of you here, this, this church at Lakeview has been your very first time in a church setting, right? Before then, you like, I never darkened the door of a church, but I came here, I felt at home, I tiptoed my way and took tiny steps forward in faith. Um, for others of you, this is where you kind of just started to really seriously take spiritual growth and take forward steps and, and get connected to a faith family and, and even start serving and all of these things, it's, it's such a beautiful thing to see, for, for me as a pastor, to see that take shape. And a lot of reason why that is able to happen, it all has to do with following those blueprints, doing church according to God's plan. And uh, I believe God has placed us as a church where we are on purpose and, and for a purpose, and, uh, and sometimes, you know, it is worth just pulling the blue pins out again, uh, checking to make sure that our efforts are continuing to align with God's design because just like with home projects, churches can get off course. 
It is possible and it can happen. And when churches stray from God's blueprint and they go off course, they end up turning into something that God never intended them to be. And so here's an example of that. Um, One example is this tweet that was sent out uh, a year or two ago. Um, It came from a place that's just a few miles south of here in Manhattan, a, uh, a, a, a religious teaching institution called Union Seminary. Uh, that seminary was started way back in 1836. It was established to train pastors for church ministry, but this school made headlines a while back for this particular tweet that went viral. And uh, you can see this picture of plants, and it says this, Today in chapel we confess to plants. Together we held our grief, joy, regret, hope, guilt, and sorrow in prayer offering them to the beings who sustain us, but whose gift we too often fail to honor. What do you confess to the plants in your life? Not quite sure what to say about that one, Um, but I gather that that might just reflect a slight swerve from God's design, from the blueprints, and uh, I've, I've heard that Bob and Larry from VeggieTales, they've been um, reached out for comment about this tweet, um, but so far they have not responded. Um, but, uh, but seriously, this is just one reminder, a sober reminder of how, it is, how easy it is um, for any church to swerve, to, to take our focus off of God's plans and just maybe shift it a little bit, not a lot, but just a degree or two, and then over the course of time, that, that subtle drift continues on a trajectory, and eventually it turns into this giant gulf. So we don't want to do that. If you have a Bible this morning, I want to invite you to open up to Matthew chapter 16. Uh, this is the very first place in Scripture where the word church is used by Jesus. And Jesus here is first casting his vision for this, this, this thing that he was going to start called church. And, and he unpacks it maybe at the most, founda- the most foundational level um, in this passage, what, what church is, is really all about. So let's, let's read it together. It says this, in, starting in verse 13 of Matthew 16. Now, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but what do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, Peter, on this rock I will build here, it is my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So there's this passage, this is the passage that that unpacks what church is about for the very first time, and there's two things about this Uh, that I want to highlight when it comes to that design. Uh, First is is the mission, and and the second is is the Messiah. So let's let's start out with the mission, this 
this idea that we see here is that our mission as a church is to build around this defining declaration that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That, that declaration, sometimes it's called the good confession, that's at the very foundation of, of what church is about when it was first founded. But there's also a very particular destination that this very particular declaration took place at. Um, and I want to look at that first. I want to unpack that. You see, Jesus engages his disciples in this dialogue, in this discussion, at a place called Caesarea Philippi. And, you know, it's easy to just kind of keep on reading right past that and not really recognize it, but that's significant. Um, and there's something significant about that particular location. You see, Caesarea Philippi was far north of where Jesus spent most of his time. It's 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, and today it makes up the northernmost part of what we would call the Golan Heights. Um, I think we actually have a map of it that may show here in just a second. You can see it, it's way up there. And, uh, and so the idea is that Jesus led his disciples far beyond the borders of Israel, far beyond the borders of Jewish territory, far beyond the borders of where people were acquainted with the Torah and the things of God. And in fact, this is, according to the biblical account, as far away from Jerusalem as Jesus ever traveled. So Caesarea Philippi was what you would have called in Jesus' day heathen territory. So this was a godless place. It was filled with godless people, but we're going to see here is that even though these people were far away from God, they still mattered to God. Even though they were godless, they were not God-forsaken. And so in this place, Caesarea Philippi, idolatry was everywhere. They, they worshipped basically anything and everything except the one and true living God. So, so Jesus and his disciples, as they were making their way there, they would have passed through all kinds of massive structure temples dedicated to all kinds of false gods. So there were temples dedicated to the idol called Baal. Uh, we read a lot about him in the, in the Old Testament. He was a pagan fertility god, and they believed that Baal had the power to either bless or curse the harvest that they were growing. This was an agricultural culture, and so that was a big deal to them. So they had to appease the god of Baal, and they did it with all these kind of depraved rituals from, from prostitution to temple sac to child sacrifice, and so that was one of the gods they worshipped. There were also temples dedicated to an idol named Pan, um, the god of nature. It's where we get the word pantheism from. That's basically about worshipping nature and creation as god. And there would have been temples dedicated to the emperors who were worshipped as, as deity. In fact, uh, that name, Caesarea, that's, that's the name where the word Caesar comes from, the highest ruler of the Roman Empire. And Caesarea Philippi, Philippi was King Philip. He's the one who ruled over that region. And, and human leaders were objects of worship. They had their own temples. And so the idea being that Jesus and his disciples, they were no longer on home turf. There was no temple there to, to the Lord. There was no Torah in Caesarea Philippi. They're the away team 
And the assumption and the expectation would have been that, okay, the things of God, they're fine and well for some people in some places, right? That's fine for you guys, you religious types down south in Jerusalem, uh, in, Gal- in Galilee, in Judea, but, but don't try to bring that stuff up here to these kind of people living in this kind of place, a place like this, like Caesarea Philippi. And, uh, and let me ask you, does, does Caesarea Philippi, does that at all sound a little bit like any place that you know of? Does it sound a little bit like this place that you and I live in today? I don't know. Sometimes, to me, it does seem like this whole metropolitan northeast area that we live in is kind of just switched off to the things of God, that there's just no interest. And, and yet, isn't it fascinating that, that that's the place where Jesus went That's the strategic location he went to to announce the birth of the church, where he introduced it. And so, you know, up to this point, no one had ever heard that word church before. Uh, But Jesus says, I'm going to build it and I'm announcing it right here in this place. It's kind of like a way of saying that that people here who who don't know me, who aren't acquainted with me, they they matter to me. And it reminds us that you and I have never accounted any person, no matter how far away from God they appear, who doesn't matter to God, right? Sometimes we need to be reminded about that. And Jesus is saying here at this place that this church that I'm going to build, it's for people in places like Caesarea Philippi. The mission is going to be to reach out and to love people who are far away from me and bring them in and bring them close. So God has a heart for places like that. And he also has a heart for for modern day Caesarea Philippi's, like like maybe Carmel. Because the reality is, is not everywhere is like here where where we are. Uh, I, I remember going to college, I was in central Pennsylvania, and it blew my mind that on Sunday mornings, there was actually traffic on the streets because people were making their way to church, right? I grew up here right in New York, so that was completely new to me. In the culture I grew up in, I just knew, you know, Sunday mornings were for sleeping in, for, for reading the paper, or maybe taking the kids to the next activity, but I had never seen that before. And after I finished school, I remember coming back here and just feeling just a tug on my heart that this is where I needed to be, that God had me here for a particular purpose. And I was a business major, so I started working in the business world. No intention of being in ministry at all, Uh, but God had different plans, and it didn't take very long for him to very clearly call me into into ministry. And and then fast forward, eventually, to call us to start this church in, in a place called Carmel. And uh, places like this have a reputation of being a church planting graveyard. That's what they call places like this. And it is by far not the easiest place to do ministry. Um, for all of us, this is not the easiest area for any of us to live out our faith and to follow the Lord. You know, I have a, I have a cousin who lives in Colorado Springs. And... Uh, 
go out there to visit him every now and then, and it's a beautiful place. The landscape is amazing, the scenery. There's all kinds of outdoor activities to choose from, and it's very much a, a Christian culture in parts of that area. And uh, it's very different from Carmel. And, you know, you can hop on I-95 and go south, keep driving for seven or eight hours, and before long you start making your way into what's called the, the Bible Belt, right? Uh, you know when you're there because you start seeing the Waffle House signs, right? That's kind, of the, that's kind of the indication. And you also start seeing these gigantic churches, these mega churches, one after the other on every other corner. And, and in those communities, people, they like shuffle from, from one church to the next church. They're kind of like a competition to see which church has the best show in town, and I hear these stories about places like that, and I'm like, that is so foreign to me. It's a completely different world, and it's nice, but it's just, it's not like places like this. I would tell you, though, that we live, we are strategically located in one of the most spiritually strategic locations around, I believe. And, and I would urge you... Um, to prayerfully stay put where you are. Unless you know for sure God is calling you somewhere else. You know, I love the South and the cost of living is a lot easier. The culture's a lot more accommodating to Christians. But, but here's the thing, if you wanna live out your faith in a place where you're needed, if spending your life in a strategic way matters to you and not just taking the path of least resistance, but you want to get to the end of your life and know that you've, you've invested your life in a place that matters. This is a pretty good place to do that, isn't it? And, and I don't think there's a price tag you can put on, on having the opportunity to do that. I, I love that we live on the mission field, maybe in a way that... Uh, you know, down in the deep south isn't. Um, if you're connected to, to God's people and, and you're serving in a church setting, you don't have to worry about where can I go around the world to find a mission field, right? All you gotta do is just go to your next door neighbor, right? Or, or, or the place you, you, you get your groceries or, you know, just your, your coworker. It's, there, there's, there's a mission field right here. And, and I continually encounter people all the time who I keep on coming away from and I hear and I listen to, to them and get the chance to share the gospel and I realize they haven't heard the gospel and rejected it, which sometimes we think that, right? People are just not open to the things of God. They haven't heard it. They haven't heard it. They've, they've, they haven't heard this amazing gospel of amazing grace articulated and demonstrated. They've heard some caricatures of it. They've got some preconceived motions, notions of what church is about and Christians are about. Um, but just like Caesarea Philippi, this is a place where there's, there's some spirituality, but there's very little Jesus. And grace is just a foreign concept. But the people of Putnam... Of, of the northeast of this area, they, they matter to God, and that's a big part of why he's placed us here. God has placed us here to, to love those around us with Jesus' love, to, to help reach those 
who are far from him, to be a part of Jesus' rescue mission and, and play a part in keep, keeping people out of what he calls here the, the gates of hell. Uh, that's, that's the blueprint. That's the design for us to be a part of connecting others to God, to learning how to live out life with him in it, to do the life of faith and find everlasting life. And so that's, that's where our focus lies. We don't want to lose that focus. That's what we're here for, and, and that's what we're all about. So, so that answers the what question. Um, let's go on and look, about, look at the how question. How do people who are far from God get close to him? Uh, this is the second point, and we do that by, by making it about the Messiah, by, by staying focused on Jesus, on who he is and what he's done, because he is the hope that we hold out. And it's worth clarifying that our hope as God's people, it's not a political hope, it's not a social hope, it's not an educational hope, and it's not even a religious hope. You know, those are, those are important things, there's a time and place for all of them, but none of those things are what brings people close to God. Only Jesus the Messiah can do that. Let me again read through this passage and then we'll look at this point. It says, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So God's blueprint is for his church to be a place where people find out the right answer to the ultimate question. That means it's not a place that has all of the answers to all of the questions. We don't have that, and, and, and there's a whole lot of mystery to life and to faith, and there's so much that we just say we, we don't understand it all, right? And sometimes churches, they do, we feel this need. We have to be able to answer every question, there are times when the right answer to the question is just, you know, I'm not really sure. I wish I knew more, but I don't. I'm not really sure. There's some mystery to that. But there is one question in particular that does need to get answered correctly. The question is, who is Jesus? That's the ultimate question. That, I believe, is the most critical question in life. And so Jesus is here querying his disciples. Who do people say I am, he says. And the answers around town are, are varied, but uh, they're all placing him on the very top shelf of the spiritual elites. He's on the same level as some of the great heroes of faith, John the Baptist and Elijah and Jeremiah. That's, that's some pretty good company to be found in. So Jesus has at this point made it to the level of legendary status in many of the people's eyes. But that's not the right answer. 
And so Jesus turns and he gets a little more personal. He turns to his disciples and he asks them, but you, who do you say I am? And I believe he gets personal with each and every one of us as well. And he asks us all this very same question, who do you say I am? Peter says, you're the Christ. You are the son of the living God. In other words, you're more than a prophet. You're you're more than a religious teacher. You're more than a moral example. You are the Christ. And there it is in Matthew chapter 16. It's taken 16 chapters to get to that point. And someone finally says it. The halls of heaven, they must have just erupted when, when, when Peter said those words. Can you just picture the angels watching and like high-fiving each other? Finally, someone gets it. He is the Christ. And just in case you're wondering, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Uh, Christ is the English translation to the Hebrew word Messiah. Messiah literally means the one anointed by God, the one who was foretold to set this broken world right again and to bring broken people back to God. And that means that Jesus is in a class all his own. He is God's one and only son sent into this world to do what you and what I and no one else could ever do on our own, to restore it, to restore the broken relationship with God that sin destroyed. Because here's the thing, following rules and being a good person and doing good deeds and trying your best, that doesn't make anyone right with God. Only Jesus can do that. And he did it by going to the cross and by dying in our place. That was something Paul I'm sorry, Peter hadn't quite figured out at this point, and in the next paragraph, if we were to read on, he would be uh, trying to correct Jesus from going to the cross, and he goes from like hero to zero really quick. Um, but, uh, but, But Jesus is at this point where he belongs, and for each of us, there's this opportunity, this urgency to put him where he belongs. He is the point He is in a category all his own. There there aren't many paths to God. There's one. And it's not a path that we walk on. It's the path that he created by going to the cross, grabbing us and bringing us back. His name is Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. And, And that profession that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, that's what makes us as a church good for anything in this world, right? If we lose that, make no mistake, we lose everything because he is our only hope and the only hope in a world gone wrong. So let me just personalize this verse in just a couple of ways. When Jesus came to Carmel, he asked, Who do people say that I am? Average Joe and Mary on the street, many of them see Jesus in a number of different ways. Some around here see him as a good teacher. Others may see him as a great prophet. Some may even put him on the same level as the Buddha or Muhammad or Gandhi. Some people see him as a personal cheerleader 
right? A motivational coach to help them feel better about themselves. Here's the reality. The people of Putnam don't see Jesus for who he is. They don't see him as more than that. And truth be told, there's even a lot of churches that don't see Jesus for who he is. And when a church starts to marginalize the Messiah and starts seeing Jesus for less than who he is, that church has lost the blueprint. When any church sees Jesus only like that, there's no way that church can accomplish its mission and be a part of God's rescue operation because God designed his church to be that one place on this planet where Jesus is fully seen for who he really is. The church is designed by God to bear witness. We just did that by celebrating communion. It's a beautiful thing. A proclamation, Paul even calls it, uh, of what Jesus has done. And um, we come together, we exalt his name, we lift him up as the name above all names. And that's it's a big part of what makes church a church. And so we get the privilege of, of coming alongside the people in our lives that God has put us uh, in, in our lives who, who don't understand that, who don't get it, who are far away from God and in whatever way we can just lovingly point people to him. We exalt Jesus. We make much of him. We don't exalt ourselves. We don't talk about how good we are. It's about him and how amazing he is and how amazing his grace is. We do that by the words we say, by the way that we live, by the love that we show, and by the priorities that we value. Living all of life in a way that glorifies and magnifies and exalts him. One of the specific things about this church that you may or may not pick up is that uh, we have intentionally decided not to be the kind of church that has something happening every night of the week so that you can fill up your entire schedule with church activities all the time. There are many churches that are like that, and I'm not speaking negatively about them, but it's just go to church Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, maybe take Thursday off, but then all weekend long, go to church again, and basically surround yourself with Christians. And um, there's something to be said for that, but uh, we've kind of said, what's the bare minimum we need to do to get people to grow in Christ, to grow in their faith, and at the same time, still have time to be able to reach out to a neighbor, to be involved in the community, to be a light in a dark place, and by that, just have time to just invest in people's lives, and not as projects, but just to love them uh, with Jesus' love. And and so that's something we intentionally try to do and go back to uh, all the time. So let me close uh, by, by taking this passage and just applying it maybe in the most personal way possible, which is, who do you say Jesus is? This is, this is what it comes down to. What is, what is your answer to that question? And this brings the ultimate issue into the sharpest of focus. Is, is Jesus your savior? Have... have Have you gotten to the place where you've been able to sign your name to the bottom of Peter's good profession of faith? 
You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You see, that's the ultimate question because there is a need in each of our lives that is just beyond our ability to meet on our own. It took nothing less than the perfect Son of God leaving his throne in heaven, coming here as a human being, living that perfect life that we could never live and going to the cross to die that death that we deserved. That's what it took. So that by trusting in him as your Messiah, as your Savior, you can have that grace and be restored to that right relationship with God. Not because you've done so many good things and offered them to God, but because of this ultimate good work that Jesus did on the cross. He did it all, and he did it all out of love. And that means that it's free, and that's what grace is all about. He paid the price in full. And that's what makes true Christianity different than every other religion. See, because religion, the basic message of religion is if you want to get right with God, you've got to be good enough. If you want to get right to God, you've got to follow the rules. And in each religion, there's a different set of rules. But if you follow them close, if you're serious, if you're dedicated, then maybe you can do enough. The Bible says... None of us are righteous. And then just to make sure we don't miss the point, he says, no, not even one. That means there's nothing we can do to be good enough to get to God, to be made right with our, with our Savior, to save ourselves. We need the Messiah. And our Savior's name is Jesus. And my prayer for each of us here is that you, if you haven't, will receive him. If you haven't received them, it starts with this a simple prayer of faith. And, uh, and, and, and this room is filled with people who are just one prayer away from that. Our neighborhoods are filled with people who are one prayer away from that. And we get this beautiful opportunity, this privilege to just be a part of that. That's God's blueprint. And it's good. Let's pray together.